This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass in here. You can in here and just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of the one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name's Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky. What's happening, Sky? Oh, not much is happening, literally. Now that I'm done with my exams and my prospectus, oh. I am taking the month of April off, and I'm actually bored, which... I'm torn because it's it is good because I will like I haven't been bored for the past two years and I will not be bored starting in May, but I'm also like I feel like I'm not doing enough, you know. So the the ever present dilemma of being a yeah. graduate student. So oh. anyway, how are you? I'm okay. I've been better. I uh, yeah. this is day I think seven after contracting the giant you know thing that we've been stuck in our houses and is stuck in masks for for the last couple of years and uh yeah i've got i had the full full ordeal and now i'm oh. finally starting to feel human so i apologize <laughs> if i if i cough or anything or oh, uh have a rough time through this episode but uh still still recovering from the big c the big c and uh not cancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, no, I'm sorry, though. I got it back in January, and I had pretty much, like, the mild version of it. I had been vaccinated and boosted, and and uh, my family and I all got it, and um, I had the, the mildest version of it, and even then, still to this day, I've got a little bit of long COVID where sometimes in the mornings I just wheeze for no reason, so... <clears throat> Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, and I hope it's just the the sickness, and there's no long term stuff yeah. for you. So you know, it's that lack of taste and smell that mm. like freaks me out the most. Mm-hmm. Totally, uh, I have heard sometimes that takes a while to come back. Yeah, that's, not that that's oh. what you want to hear. <laughs> sorry. Oh, man. Anyway, should we move on to someone who who uh, did not have COVID, but maybe had uh, a harder time <laughs> yeah let's swap to the mystery man himself mr mystery william man. scott yes yes so our t- sources today are newspapers.com library of congress chronicling america idaho statesman articles ancestry.com records nespers county idaho mines on westernminninghistory.com mining sources listed in earlier mining history episodes so check all of those out and a Wikipedia article on Old Mission State Park. 
as tends to be usual, um, you'll hear throughout the season, very, very little is known about William Scott and his crime. Per the inmate catalog, his age and approximate birth year, which may be the only information we could use to track him down, were not noted. And in fact, that is the case with all of our inmates that we're talking about this season. So we do know that he was arrested in Nez Perce County for grand larceny. The notes in the catalog state that the details about his crime are listed in the Owyhee Avalanche from November 4th, 1871, which reveals that he stole a horse, its bridle, and a saddle on October 11th of that year. He was then sentenced to three years at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and he was brought down to Boise from Nez Perce County with a Chinese man who was being transported to a U.S. penitentiary for, quote, selling whiskey to Indians, end quote. The only other information we have about William Scott comes to us four months after he arrived at the territorial prison in Idaho City. The Idaho Daily Statesman reported on February 10, 1871, that Sheriff McClintock, quote, concluded to go through the prison and so informed the inmates who ridiculed the idea of anything being wrong, end quote. It seems that Sheriff McClintock was correct, as William and two other inmates, including John Stuart Black, one of the first inmates from Ada County, sawed through the rivets of their manacles. McClintock found two case knives and a flat piece of metal that had been fashioned into a saw in their possession. Upon inspection, guards found their tools, confiscated them, and, quote, again, securely ironed them, much to their discomfiture, end quote. The newspaper added, quote, any attempt by them to escape at this season of the year would be the height of folly, for should they get out, they couldn't leave the roads on account of the snow, and their recapture would be a certainty, end quote. So this is all we know about William Scott's time in prison, and ironically, it is not even at the territorial prison. Uh, There is a potential that he was one of the ones who escaped in the February 1872 escape from the Idaho City Penitentiary. There's one inmate who is not named throughout that article, except in one article at the very end, and they use the name Scotty. That could be him, but that's the only time that that name comes up in regards to that escape. And again, that is in the Idaho City Territorial Prison, not the one in Boise. And so because of a lack of specific details and with such a common name like William Scott, determining his life before, during, and after prison seems to be nearly impossible. Interestingly, another William Scott was making headlines on November 4th, 1871. On that same day, newspapers throughout the country, including in the western states and territories of Oregon and Utah, reported on a William C. Scott of Jacksonville, Florida, who was executed on October 27th for the murder of a woman named Rosa Carlton and two children in February of 1871. We know that this is obviously not the same William Scott, but it is quite a coincidence that another William Scott should be in the news, especially as we can find so little about Idaho's William Scott. Because William's story was so short and lacking in details, the mining history of northern Idaho, thankfully, is almost the exact opposite. So forgive us if the majority of this episode is mostly mining history. I spent so many hours trying to dig into this guy and had Ian digging for him and I was asking archives for any information about him. And Jim Riley, our archivist, Mm -hmm. dug like crazy help trying to help me and we just could not turn anything up on this guy mm. for some reason so okay. that literally took us like five minutes <laughs> the mining history is still f- super fascinating mm-hmm. up here 
Mining in the Coeur d'Alene region began in the 1860s and briefly surged after false gold rush reports circulated about a big discovery in the area in May 1865. In 1871, however, the Idaho Daily Statesman reported that Deputy U.S. Marshal Chester P. Coburn, Deputy Sheriff of Nez Perce County David Baldwin, and William B. Morris, Superintendent of the Northwestern Stage Company, quote, informed us that the prospects of northern Idaho are brightening. They admit that the placer mining interest is subsiding, but say that there is a perceptible looking up in the quartz mining and agricultural interests. The presence of the surveyors of the Northern Pacific Railroad in that region has made the settlers wear smiling countenances, end quote. Though some mining continued through the 1870s in northern Idaho, there were no major strikes or fines in the first two decades of territorial history. Everything changed, however, on April 25, 1882, when A.J. Pritchard and his partners discovered gold near the current town of Murray. Before disbanding, the party swore themselves to secrecy about the discovery, which Pritchard kept for a year before he eventually bragged of the find to some acquaintances. On October 24, 1883, the Ketchum Keystone published a letter from a man named D.M. Lemer under the title The New Goldfields. Quote, There has been some considerable excitement raised here in the past few days by the fact becoming generally known that the newly found goldfields of Coeur d'Alene were only 20 miles from here. Three men came in from Eagle, the name of the new camp, and report a greater part of the mining at present is on Pritchard Creek, a stream about 40 miles long. But prospecting is not confined to the stream alone, and they further state that all the outlying creeks prospect favorably without a single exception, end quote. The rush was on. 5,000 miners rushed to the Coeur d'Alene's in the winter of 1883-84. Placers on the north fork of the Coeur d'Alene River yielded $260,000 in 1884 and $376,000 in 1885. With so many miners in the area, finding more loads and mines was only inevitable, and 1884 was one of the most productive years in the state for mining, especially in the Coeur d'Alene region. On May 2, 1884, the discovery of the Tiger Mine near Burke marked the beginning of the lead-silver operations in the Coeur d'Alene mining district. The Morning Mine was discovered on July 2nd, followed by the discovery of the Polaris Mine near Wallace on August 30th. On September 10th, Noah S. Kellogg, the namesake of the town of Kellogg, discovered the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mine, and just two weeks later, the Yankee Mine, later the Sunshine Mine, was found. All of these discoveries in 1884 alone served to make the Coeur d'Alene region the greatest producer of silver in the United States, producing over $5 million worth of silver in just six years. The Morning Mine eventually became the deepest lead-silver operation anywhere in the country, and deep workings in the Yankee-slash-Sunshine after 1934 made it the biggest silver-producing load in the world. Production of the silver mines in the new state of Idaho and distribution to the rest of the country were dependent on the construction of railroads to serve the district, and the Union Pacific and Northern Pacific Railroads competed to get tracks to the region. The Union Pacific Line hauled silver loads to a smelter at Omaha, Nebraska, and the Northern Pacific hauled loads to a smelter at Helena, Montana. In 1890, the railroads decided to join forces and combined into a smelter trust, which raised rates for freighting costs, causing mines to either reduce wages or temporarily shut down in 1892. 
After two months of closure, the mine owners worked together to force the railroads to rescind the rate increase and told miners they would reopen the mines if the miners agreed to accept lower wages to match declining metal prices. When miners refused, the owners imported strike breakers and scabs to resume partial production. On July 6, 1892, after steelworkers of the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steelworkers Union in Homestead, Pennsylvania, struck against the Carnegie Steel Company, Violence broke out between union workers and 300 members of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, brought in by mill owners to break the strike. Though the Pinkertons ultimately surrendered before the Pennsylvania State Militia put down the strike, 16 men were killed and 23 were wounded. But the Pinkertons' reputation was tarnished in the eyes of the working class around the country. On the same day as the violence broke out in Pennsylvania, union leaders in Coeur d'Alene found out that the secretary of their union— Charles Seringo, was a Pinkerton agent employed by the mine owners. In retaliation, miners at the Helena Frisco Ore Mine ore mine at Gem dynamited the Frisco mill and captured non-union workers. Having escaped the violence after his identity was discovered, Seringo stated that he found the, quote, leaders of the Coeur d'Alene unions to be, as a rule, a vicious, heartless gang of anarchists. On the evening of July 11, 1892, 500 strikers left Gem for the Bunker Hill mine at Wardner and packed the Wardner ore mill with dynamite. The next morning, they gave the manager a choice, either discharge the non-union employees or have his mill destroyed. He dismissed the non-union workers. The same day that strikers threatened to dynamite the ore mill, U.S. President William Henry Harrison agreed to send in federal troops to put down the disorder. Martial law reigned in the region until November 1892, and several Union miners were arrested and held in a makeshift jail called the Bullpen, as the county jail couldn't support all the miners the governor wished to prosecute. On August 5, 1892, John Kneebone, a blacksmith who worked for the Frisco Mill, testified for the state against 21 Coeur d'Alene miners. As reported in the Idaho Statesman, Kneebone stated that armed men surrounded the mill on the morning of July 11th, and the first shot was fired around 4.30 a.m., quote, by one of a number of men who were concealed by brush or some other natural breastwork. Seven or eight shots followed the first report, and then there was a brisk fusillade. At least 100 shots were fired before there was a reply made by the people in the Frisco Mill, end quote. Then, according to Kneebone's testimony, what he calls the mob held Frisco Mill employees hostage forcing them to march to the Northern Pacific Railway Station and board boxcars for Wallace. The day after arriving in Wallace, Kneebone took the train to the mission of the Sacred Heart, an old Jesuit mission. And the oldest standing building in the state, built between 1850 and 1853. Near Cataldo, Idaho, which served as a hospitality stop and supply station for traders, settlers, and miners. As Kneebone was playing cards at the mission that evening, armed men entered the hamlet, quote, after the men came into the mission, they commenced shooting at the men who were sitting on the porches in the grass. The armed force called us vile names and ordered us to get out. A man named De Moville, a gem rioter, recognized me. He told others who fired at me. I ran up the track towards Wallace, but I soon took to the brush, end quote. Kneebone would go on to name other miners and give testimony against the Union miners who would originally be convicted for their role in the events. Any convictions the government obtained against them, however, were dismissed upon appeal. 
While being mistakenly imprisoned on federal charges in Boise, some union leaders decided that the Western Union should band together into a regional union for greater collective bargaining power. In 1893, the Western Federation of Miners was created at a convention in Butte, Montana Territory. By 1894, most of the mines in Coeur d'Alene were unionized, represented by the Knights of Labor, another major national union, but tensions had not been resolved. The Caldwell Tribune noted on May 19, 1894, that 350 men working in the Bunker Hill and Sullivan, quote, have served notice on the management that after Thursday next, they will refuse to work unless uniform wages of $3.50 are paid to miners, carmen, and shovelers alike. The management will resist, end quote. Two months later, violence erupted in Coeur d'Alene during the National Pullman Railroad Strike of 1894 after a fatal tunnel cave-in in the Bunker Hill and Sullivan mine systems. The Idaho Statesman reported on July 8, 1894, that Idaho Governor William J. McConnell received a message from a mine manager. It read as follows, quote, Governor W. J. McConnell, Part of our machinery was blown up by dynamite last night. The sheriff says he has not resisted yet, but it is impossible for him to guard against secret dynamite and assassination. If we do not have secure protection, we will have to shut down. Signed, F.W. Bradley, manager, end quote. Almost immediately came another message. Quote, W.J. McConnell, governor of Idaho. I am unable to guard against secret dynamiting and assassination. Several outrages have already occurred and others are probable. Signed, D.R. Cameron, Sheriff Shoshone County, end quote. Jeez, can you imagine Mm -mm. being in the middle of all this? Wow. So during this violence, union members shot non-union members. An armed mob shot and killed John Kneebone, the state's witness from the 1892 riot. Others kidnapped a mine superintendent, and still others tried to blow up the powder house at the Bunker Hill and Sullivan mine. Governor McConnell requested federal aid, supposedly to prevent interruptions in railroad service through the region, and President Grover Cleveland sent 700 troops in July. The Army agreed to only patrol railroad lines, and Union members stopped attacking non-Union workers. The Army stayed until September. In December of that year, the Bunker Hill and Sullivan closed rather than pay the demanded Union wage. Owners reopened the Bunker Hill and Sullivan six months later, still refusing to join the Union, paying more than 50 cents less, around $15 in 2021, than the Union wage. And just to give you an idea, this is, if you're like, wow, they were so violent in in the North at this time, this, the, the late... Gilded Age into the early Progressive Era, 1880s through 1890s, was some of the great, it was like the time of some of the greatest labor strikes and attempts to unionize in the country. Um, You know, the Haymarket Affair, which was the bombing of the Haymarket in Chicago, was in 1886. Um, So really, if you're like, wow, why is this happening? That's because this has just been happening around the country uh, for almost a decade at this point. And, um, you know, this is, uh, I think, the last time we see a really huge surge in labor-related violence, though we do see some some attempts at uh, greater, you know, unionizing and things like that, arguably through the New Deal, though we really see the end of that after World War II. I feel like as all big industries mature and develop, collective bargaining, you know, the workers mm-hmm. actually having a voice in mm-hmm. how things are run mm-hmm. is so common. And we're seeing that mm-hmm. today yeah. as tech industry is starting to mature and in mm-hmm. some sections. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, interesting. it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if we'll, if we'll see 
this violence um, mm-hmm. in labor not. again, but yeah. <laughs> you know, the history does tend to go in cycles and, and uh, this is starting to feel a little more, because uh, we really have been a nation without federal support for unions for you know, well over half a century. Um, I mm-hmm. think the last big legislation was the Warner Act during the New Deal, which basically allowed for protections for unions uh, to collectively bargain. The National Labor Relations Bill I introduced is not new in principle. It is based upon the long-cherished American belief that every worker should be a free man in fact as well as in name should be free to belong to any kind of union that he likes. My bill guarantees this economic freedom in the clearest terms. Under the Wagner Act, as it became known, labor was at last guaranteed the right to organize. But though the Wagner Act was a labor victory, unionism itself still had not reached out to touch the unskilled or semi-skilled laborer. The coal miners, for instance, as well as auto and steel workers, were still excluded. Um, and then we see really the decline of that uh, with the rise of the new right in in this like late seventies uh, into the eighties, when you know unions are seen as as really uh, detrimental as the country sort of moves to the right of the political spectrum, uh, mm-hmm. starting in the seventies and eighties. And so it's going to be interesting to see. I think you know, what happens. I think we are seeing the cycle of this attempt to ensure that workers are protected in, in ways that, that we perhaps have seen similarly, though, again, hopefully it doesn't reach the scale of <sighs> violence. Yeah. So anyway, that's just a, sorry, a little bit of a tangent I've just been thinking about. So five years later, uh, in uh, 1899, the wage difference continued to cause problems in the region. The Western Federation of Miners continued to pressure the Bunker Hill and Sullivan and other non-union mines to unionize. On April 24, 1899, the miners demanded that the company adopt the prevailing union wage, which was higher than most mine owners wanted to pay. Bunker Hill Superintendent Albert Birch agreed to the wage demands, but he declared he would rather, quote, shut down and remain closed for 20 years, end quote, than join the union. He then fired 17 men he believed to be union members and demanded any other union men who had infiltrated the company to collect back pay and quit. Miners in other nearby mines feared their owners would similarly cut workers and wages, and officers of the Western Federation of Miners agreed that a large demonstration of force was necessary. On April 29, 1899, 250 miners seized a train northeast of Wallace. With every stop, more and more miners jumped on, with final numbers coming in at around 1,000 men heading toward Wardner. Word had reached workers at the Bunker Hill that a mob was headed their way, and though most had fled, the crowd forced the rest of the workers out, shooting and killing one non-union man. One union man was mistakenly shot and killed in the melee. At Wardner, union men loaded the Bunker Hill mill worth $250,000 with 3,000 pounds of dynamite. The explosion completely decimated the mill. Wow. 3,000 pounds of dynamite. That's I so even... much. Like, that's an unbelievable oh, amount of dynamite. That is so wild. Governor Frank Stuneberg asked for intervention of federal troops, not to preserve order, but to arrest offending miners and, quote, to test the power of the Western Federation in court, end quote. 
Hundreds of miners were arrested and held in the bullpen, including miners who fled into Montana to escape prosecution and the local sheriff and two county commissioners. No criminal charges were ever brought against any of these miners. However, martial law remained in the region, and no miners were allowed to work in a mine in the district without a permit, and no permits were issued if workers belonged to the Western Federation of Miners. Quote, when the mines reopened, the Western Federation had no miners at work, end quote. Still, between 1884 and 1984, the Coeur d'Alene Mining District produced nearly 80% of the total of Idaho's metal yield, including 453,750 ounces of gold, 772,177,000 ounces of silver, 7,067,565 tons of lead, 127,824 tons of copper, and 2,601,787 tons of zinc. Sorry, with your brain fog, let me just have you read just this jumble of, of numbers all <laughs> in a like, row. I was like, did, oh no, there's a lot correct? of numbers here. <laughs> it was. <laughs> 772 million ounces of silver. I mean, it's unfathomable, really. You know, I feel like in in our day and age, mining is is such a different industry than we tend to think of when we think of this, like, older way of of mining. And to think about pulling 772 million ounces of silver, (sighs) I I feel like it's so... we, We so casually brush over the fact that like yeah idaho's history is like so full of mining and we like glaze past the fact that it was at one point coeur d'alene especially was uh, you were pulling the most amount of silver out like in the world yeah yeah. like that's again i feel like it's something that that does not get emphasized enough because if i understood that when i was younger i would have been like okay idaho's like pretty cool (laughs) it's it is it's really neat yeah People think we only pull potatoes out of the ground. They don't know about these millions of ounces of silver, gold, lead, copper, zinc. It's crazy. I know this. um, My boyfriend is from Texas, and uh, and he you know knows I'm from Idaho, and he actually is is in school to be a jeweler right now, and so he's really interested in in gems, and and I've been trying to tell him like, yeah, Idaho has like a bunch of them, and instead, last time I went home, he was like, can you bring a fresh Idaho potato? And I was like, no, (laughs) I cannot because that's I don't live near that, but um, I I don't feel that I looking at these numbers, I have appropriately emphasized that like Idaho is where he absolutely wants to be as a jeweler and someone who's interested in like gems and precious metals because uh, (laughs) this is I mean those are crazy numbers all right so the region remained an important mining area for most of the 20th century as of March 2022 there are still 22 active mines in Nez Perce County mostly for copper silver and gold to hear more about mining history in the Nez Perce County, including a mining tragedy in the late 20th century, please check out episode 49 with the story of Lula and Shreve. Well, that was William Scott, Sky. Not a whole lot about him. <laughs> nope. But the mining history of northern Idaho is truly rich mm-hmm. in every sense of the word. <laughs> pun. Yeah, I was going to say pun intended. <laughs> so with that, everybody, make sure to do your own time. And do your own number. 
And today we are actually going to end with the song, a recording made here at the Old Idaho Penitentiary in the 1970s about the reference mining tragedy at the Sunshine Mine. And it was recorded by Andy Frank Starr and his band here at the Old Pen with the prisoners. So take it away, Andy. (laughs) See the children crying Hearing their daddy's dying Broken hearts everywhere Tonight There's sadness in the valley Children crying for their daddy It's as dark in their hearts as it is down in the mine. It was on May 2nd, 1972. It was a day like any other. could not see it was good by forever hello eternity see the children crying fear in their Sadness in the valley Children crying for their daddy It's as dark in their hearts As it is down in the Yeah.
stalk the sunshine mine Like a silent killer He found his prey Men never knew What happened On that fateful day As the poison gas Took its toll Loved ones' hearts were filled with fear For nine long days they waited For news they'd never hear Then as suddenly as it began it ended Then came the news we all did dread The foreman said it's all over now Loved ones can go on home. There are two survivors and 91 are dead. See the children crying, fearing their dead is dying. Broken hearts everywhere. Sadness in the valley, children crying for their daddy. It's as dark.